We are making our way through Galatians, and we have been in chapter 5 now for a few weeks. We wanted to slow down and look at the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're not going to look at every aspect of the fruit. And again, Paul says this is fruit, singular, not fruits, but there are these aspects of the fruit. We wanted to, to slow down during Advent and look at the first three aspects of love, joy, and peace. So this morning we want to look at love, which is easily covered in 30 minutes. So easy to cover everything about love. Let me just say this before I read the passage that it will be tempting as I read this list that Paul gives of these aspects of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's heart, these things that he produces slowly, fruit grows slowly. You don't watch it transform. But this fruit that grows from the heart because of the work of the Spirit in a believer in Jesus, it's going to be tempting when you read this to think, this is a description of me with a few gaps. Uh, and it's not primarily a description of us. This is an, actually an accurate description of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you, and we're gathered not in our name, not our individual names, not downtown Presbyterian's name. We're gathered in the name of your son whom you love so much you, you would audibly say from heaven that he is your beloved. And so help us to worship, even as we listen, even as we gather under your word. May this be our worship as we listen. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't normally do this if, if you're visiting, but I, I want to give you my outline at the beginning and, and tell you where I'm headed with this, because really I'm, I'm preaching on a word. Now, I'm going to draw from other scriptures, but I'm preaching on just Paul's mention that really the, the, the head streams, the headwaters of the fruit of the Spirit first is, is love. So here's where I'm headed. I want to think about the fountain of love, the counterfeits of love, and the transformation of love. Right? The fountain of love, the counterfeits of love, and the transformation of love. Of love. Now, having said that, uh, after our 11 o'clock service last week, I, I got in a conversation with someone who was visiting, and it was really great. It was a young man who came with, with some big theology questions. Now, you might think that I'm, I'm interacting with big theology questions all the time. I, I do sometimes. A lot of what I'm talking with people about is just their lives or trying to connect the dots between the scriptures and real life, the gospel and real life, but these were straight up theology questions that he was wrestling with and, and they were some of the classics like how do we reconcile that the Bible presents God as all-powerful 
and nothing can stop him, nothing can thwart his purposes, so his sovereignty, and that, that we're human beings with real agency, and we can make real decisions. How do, how do those interact that I'm not really a robot and he's completely in control? We talked about that some. So I, so I solved that. And then, <laughs> moving on, next question. Uh, his friend walked up and he said, well, you know, really maybe the bigger question is how can God be one and this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not three gods. And the Father's not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's not the Son. But there's one God. There's three persons. And then I chimed in and said, well, you know, it's interesting you put it that way because I had a mentor who would say, really, in some ways, the ultimate baffling theological thing for our little mortal, frail minds to wrestle with is in the beginning, God. And if we're going to start off thinking about the source of love, where can love come from? Where does love come from? I believe that's where we have to start. The fountain of love is not us. Um, before there were any human beings... Before there was earth, before there were planets, before there were galaxies, before there was a universe, and maybe where our minds are going now is just complete darkness, before there was darkness, because darkness is a thing, when there was no thing from all eternity, there was God. What was God doing before there was a universe to rule over, interact with? What did God do when there was only God? And Scripture only gives us clues, but there's a really strong clue in the Gospel of John. And it's a prayer that the Apostle John records that Jesus prays shortly before he's arrested. And this is the night he goes into custody. And then the next day is crucified. But he pours out his heart in prayer to his father. And one of the things he says, this is John 17, verse 24. He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we tend to think that everything of meaning really started when we showed up. You know, one, one person said <clears throat> that every human being thinks his or her birth is the New Year's Eve of time. But before there was anything, God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loved. Perfect love within Himself between the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Complete and total honor of one another and delight in one another and joy in one another so that really we could describe God's existence within Himself as bliss. And, and the Bible 
actually calls him the blessed God. Now, now, what that might sound like to us is the blessing God. He is that. He is the source of all blessing, the one who blesses. But within himself, God is the blessed God. Bliss and delight and deepest connection within himself. No needs, no deficiencies. And here's the amazing thing. Because it is the nature of love to be other-oriented, which God has within himself, when there was no need to do so, when there was no outside force requiring this, no one and nothing requires anything of God, and there was only God. When there was only God, God in his love, God is love, created other and more other. God created by the word of his power, the heavens and the earth. Every molecule, every galaxy that we're seeing with the new telescope, and every human being. And the, the thing that we need to know about human beings, actually two things. Number one, you, I, every person I'm looking at, every person that's ever lived, bears the image of this God who is love. Whether that human being's life is a life of love. Every human being bears the image of the God who's love. And no aspect of creation cost God more dearly. No facet of creation has been more personally, deeply expensive to him than human beings. Because it's to human beings that he most gives of his free choice, love, which is not just delight in honor of what he had within himself, but now being so other-oriented, so attuned to the needs of the other, that you'll sacrifice. Um, if you come over to our house sometime, in our, in our living room there's some acoustic guitars hanging on the wall. And sometimes when a noise happens in the house it might be a noise from the tv it could be somebody coughing when there's a loud noise for just a second or two you'll hear the guitars continue to resonate uh, my nicest guitar that has the best wood and the best craftsmanship it was made to resonate sometimes if someone uh, raises their voice with, without anyone touching the guitar it will continue to resonate for a little bit because it was made to resonate with sound. Uh, there is a reason why for all of us when you hear a story of someone being so concerned for someone else whether stranger, friend, family, whatever that they give of themselves sacrificially we, we, we start to get choked up. Our feelings go up in our throat. And uh, it, it can be true or it can be fiction. If we just bump up against that, 
We resonate. Uh, you can be a babysitter or a grandparent reading a child the giving tree. And suddenly it's hard to read. Uh, you can be reading about Hogwarts. I've been told, I, 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 have, I can't document it, but I've been told that at one point when J.K. Rowling was finishing the final volume, The Deathly Hallows, and she's writing it. And she comes to a point where a character sacrifices himself. She wept. And it's not real. The story's coming out of her. But she resonated. Because she's an image bearer, if that's true. It may be the story of somebody laying down his life in combat for those around him. It, it could be hearing about uh, a grandparent who's, who has an adult child who's unstable, and that adult child has a child. And so now th this adult child is in prison or can't be trusted with children. And so this grandparent who is tired and who was ready to, to put down all this responsibility and not raise children and rest and recoup brings this child into her home and sacrifices and it moves us. When those stories, when those accounts... When, when that moves you, that's you and I showing that we bear the image of this God who is love. God is the fountain of all love. What, what are the counterfeits of love? And, and I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to give you an exhaustive list. I just want to give you something of a sampling, but... In one of Paul's other letters, his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, he says, let love be genuine. Now, if he has to say to Christians, let love be genuine, what does that tell you? Even Christians are prone to do love that is fake and counterfeit. It maybe appears to be love, but it's not the, the genuine article. So what are some counterfeits of love? Here's, here's one. Where you say, I love you, but what you really mean is, I will fix you. I will, or I will rescue you. I have seen the way you need to be, and I'm so attracted by the you that I have envisioned that you need to be, that I believe that I can get you there. So I love you. I'm going to attach myself to you to conform you to the way you ought to be. You can do that with individuals. You can do that with a whole group of people. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about local churches is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard of him. He was a um, Lutheran pastor. He was killed by the Nazis. And uh, he says in his book, Life Together, it's, it's a book about Christians living as community. He says that, that one of the most harmful things for a Christian community is someone who comes into what we would call a local church and they have what Bonhoeffer calls a wish dream. And a wish dream is the person who walks in and they, they have already decided what this local church needs to look like, what its priorities need to be, what its programs need to be, how it needs to do things. And, and the person who comes in with the wish dream seems to be so committed, they seem to love the community, and they end up getting mad at the community because it never lives up to their expectation. And so they didn't fix it, and they get mad at the community, and they even get mad at God. 
Bonhoeffer says, the person with the wish dream seems to love the community and dismantles the community. But it can look like, oh, I love you, church. Or individually, I love you, but really what I'm trying to do is make you into the image I've already decided you should be. And it could be that when you look back on some of the most difficult, most painful, deep relationships you had, it may be when you tried to step in and fix someone. Or you decided to rescue someone. Here's another one. Um, I love you, meaning I love you making me feel loved back. I love you making me feel loved back. This one actually seems to show up in Galatians. Look under the passage in italics. This is from the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. And Paul's talking about the people who came in after he proclaimed the gospel to these Galatians and they became Christians and the churches started. Folks came in behind him and Paul makes this observation about them. He says, chapter 4, verse 17, they make much of you But for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, if if I'm reading him correctly, Paul seems to say, boy, the guys that came in behind me, they really doted on you. Why did they do that? At the end of the day, they doted on you so that you would dote on them. They made a big deal out of you so that the Net effect would be that you make a big deal out of them. There's a way to say, oh, I love you so much, but what I'm waiting is for you to say back to me, oh, but I love you more. I love because I need to hear those words from you. Now, is it good to feel loved? Is it appropriate to want to be loved and feel loved? That is bearing God's image. Is it love that I'm going to use you to get the feeling that I crave. That is not love. That has nothing to do with sacrifice and giving. Here's another one. Uh, Man, I love people. Which can really mean I am energized by people. Which can really mean I am very extroverted. Now we need extroverts. If the whole world was like me... Yikes. But when we say I'm, I love people, translation, I'm energized by people, uh, what if those people betray you? Are you energized by them now? What if those people have a personality disorder? Do you love them now? Are you energized by them now? Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospels. I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious, but man, Jesus knows people. He knows people. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience in Judea. So when he says sinners, who's he talking about? That's how they talk about Gentiles, non-Jews. Jesus says, hey, you love the people that love you back? You love what a friend of mine calls PLUs, people like us? You love your PLUs? Everybody loves their PLUs. There's nothing supernatural about that. There's no need to even know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't even have to exist in a way for you to do that. 
So how would we know love? If I love you and it costs me. And it makes demands of me that are painful. One of the privileges I have as a pastor is, is a, doing premarital counseling with couples before they, they get married. And I, I like to ask couples a question that was asked of Dana and me when, when we just started our little bit of premarital counseling. Uh, the person counseling asked us if we loved each other and we looked at each other starry-eyed and said, yes. And he said, how, how do you know you love each other? And when I've asked couples that question, sometimes I get wonderful answers, but I'd say 40 to 50% of the time I get some version of, um, he's strong for me, she's strong for me, uh, I, I've never felt so accepted, I've never felt so connected with a person, I've never felt so built up, which is awesome. I mean, I don't want somebody in premarital counseling to say, I cannot stand the sight of them. I'm weary of their presence. So we love to hear stuff like this. But then I think you have to ask a follow-up question. Okay, so maybe to the, to the female fiancé. So perish the thought. But let's say that he, five years from now, falls into a deep depression. He's so depressed that he ends up losing his job because of just his inability to get things across the finish line, <clears throat> how he interacts with people. And he puts on weight, and maybe he's not as attractive to you as he is now. And, and the sort of affirmation and appreciation and being adored, you know, that thing that you feel from him, you are not getting, it's not that you're getting less of that, you're getting zero of that then how do you know that you love him? And of course, the answer has to be, I know I love him when I commit to love him in sickness and in health. And I give him some little pale reflection of how God has dealt with me, that even though I feel like you're trampling on this covenant that we made, I'm going to keep it for the two of us. Then you're loving. The counterfeits are easy and the counterfeits are different than niceness. The real things make demands. So, what's the transformation of love? And I'm, I'm using that, when I say the phrase the transformation of love, I'm using that in a dual sense, in, in the sense that the transformation of love, there's a love that acts upon me to transform me and transform us but also like what does it look like for my love to be transformed the love that comes naturally to me is fake the love that comes naturally to me is not genuine it's self-serving it's judo moves to make someone feel like I love them without me having to pay the costs and meet the sacrificial demands so what's the transformation of love? And this is where we've got to go back to the gospel itself. The gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians when he first came in. So let's think about bad news and good news. What's the bad news and what's the good news? 
the bad news is really bad. Here's the bad news. God's law reflects what God is like. God's law is like a net that captures his values and codifies them. Well, God is love. And so one of the things on the books, on the law books of Israel is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's from Leviticus of all places. Frequently quoted by the New Testament writers. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as we hear that, we might think, great. That is a death sentence for us. And I know it's jarring to say it that way. But something that we've already seen from Galatians is that in chapter 3, Paul showing these Galatians, the law is not the way to know you have eternal life. The law, it's not a problem with the law. But the law, the rules, is not how you know that you have eternal life and forgiveness and that you are in the people of God. And to make, one of the ways Paul makes that point, he quotes that law in Galatians 3. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So what what must I do to have eternal life? Here's all you have to do. Keep the law of God perfectly, perpetually, every moment. That's all you have to do. When we don't love our neighbor, and as you're thinking about neighbor, like try to draw the camera out just from the PLUs to the socially awkward person in my life, the difficult coworker, the most strained family relationship, the homeless man walking toward me that I have no idea how to interact with him. Our lovelessness brings a curse. And and friends, here's the thing. It's a two-edged sword because we want God to judge lovelessness at the end. You know, what's behind trafficking children? What's behind trafficking teenagers? What's behind just grinding someone in slave labor? I'm not talking about in another century. In this century, in our time. What's behind that? What's behind murder? What's behind domestic abuse? Lovelessness. The judgment that we want God to do at the end to make all things right is a judgment on lovelessness. But the two-edged sword is, if he's going to judge lovelessness, he's going to judge all lovelessness. And we are loveless. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Galatians 3 goes on to say that when Jesus was hanged on a tree, and I believe that's correct English, when you're hanged, Like the gallows, you're hanged. When Jesus was hanged on a tree, another part of God's law kicked in. Anyone who hangs on a tree becomes a curse. The New Testament says that when Christ took our place, the place of all those who believe in Him and entrust themselves to Him, 
He took on himself all our lovelessness. When you think about your regrets, do you ever think about the, thing you, the things you've said to your family? Be ye single, married, divorced, children of your own, not. But do, you, but do you ever think about the ways I damaged my own family members? And I wish down to my toes I could take that back, and I can't. Those words and all the divine fairness that they deserve went on to Christ and were paid for. Why did Christ do that? Did Christ have to do that? Does anybody make outside demands on Jesus, the Son of God? Look from Galatians Chapter 2, verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul puts those together in multiple places. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves sinners. Well, how do you know Jesus loves sinners? Because he gives himself for sinners. Not just to teach. Not just to be accessible. He gives his life. And his blood. For us. And here's what that means. Not only has all our lovelessness. Be it to the poor. Be it to family be it to the weird guy across the street. Not only does he take away all our guilt, but he frees us. Everybody shows up in this life with a master. Everybody's heart has a boss. And until God intervenes, our bad nature is the boss. What Paul calls the flesh. And the flesh has zero interest in sacrificial love. The flesh is all about need and consumption. And when Christ bursts in and saves someone, he not only takes punishment, but he becomes the new, dare I say it, boss, the master. And that lovelessness doesn't have dominion over us anymore. He sets us free. Not that we perfectly love. No one in this room perfectly loves. But now we can love. Now we can do something that is more powerful and supernatural than niceness. We can love those that we wouldn't naturally love. Um, You might say that the, the, the kind of testing ground at first is other Christians. That's daunting enough. But if, if you want to run the diagnostic, am I a loving person or a nice person? Am I a loving person or am I just a, a nice moral person? Here's two diagnostics that are just too hard to do through sheer niceness. The first one is forgiveness. 
And I've said it from up front, and I've never had any reason to alter it because it continues to be true, at least for me, that the hardest thing in the Christian life to do is to forgive. Um, Some of you may know the writer Anne Lamott, and in a TED Talk she gave not long ago, in four words she said volumes. She said in a speech, quote, Earth is forgiveness school. It is. There's no, if you're in hell, no one forgives. If you're in heaven, there is no need. Earth is forgiveness school. Uh, the person who does the thing that you feel like just lobbed a Molotov cocktail into your family's existence... To forgive that person. Not saying trust them now to trust them without discernment. That's that's not what we mean. But to let the debt go. That's love. That's supernatural. And one other that the Bible brings up over and over and over and over. And I would just say to you, if you don't find this compelling... It may be because you are not reading all the way through the whole Bible over and over and over and over. But the other is the poor. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus 19, where Paul quotes, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Right before that, God is making legislation about how do you care for the poor in your midst. Even the non-Israelite, even the alien, even the sojourner. How do you care for him or her? This is on the law books because I care about it. Because that person bears my image. Niceness does not have to go there. Niceness can stay around nice people. But it is supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to move toward the under-resourced. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. And that's going to mean different things in different people's lives. But if it means nothing, then what we're dealing with is niceness. Because love will move there. Love must move there. Let let me end by saying this. Uh, I had a professor that said, you know, when when these English anthologies put together, um, you know, representation of different writers, and and, uh, whenever they put Jonathan Edwards in there as an American writer, wasn't really a writer, but we have some of his writings. Well, he was a writer, yeah. What they always put in there is this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, this professor said, you know what they never put in the anthology? Is his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love. It's always sinners in the hands of an angry God, because I think it fits a stereotype. But I, I want to read you just a little, an excerpt from this sermon called Heaven is a World of Love by Jonathan Edwards. And, and I want to ask you, as you think about how toxic our communication is, When you think about how toxic social media can be. When you think about how backstabbing and snarky a work environment can be. 
And when you think about living in a world that really does have children trafficked and really does have millions of slaves, what would you like the world to be? And here's how Edwards describes heaven. And understand, he doesn't mean a galaxy far, far away somewhere. He means when the love of God transforms the earth. And he's going to use the word clog. If you've ever felt like, I do want to be the loving person God made me to be, but I, it's, like it's like it's clogged in my heart. Listen to this. He says that heaven is where there is no treachery or unfaithfulness or inconstancy or jealousy in any form. Where there is no clog or hindrance to the exercises or expressions of love. No influence of folly or indiscretion in any word or deed. Where there is no separation wall and no misunderstanding or strangeness, but full acquaintance and perfect intimacy in all. Where there's no division through different opinions or interests, but where all in that glorious and loving society shall be most nearly and divinely related. And each shall belong to every other. And all shall enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without any sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow or any enemy to molest them or any busybody to create jealousy or misunderstanding or mar the perfect and holy and blessed peace that reigns in heaven. Do you want that world? We want that world. God prepares his people for that world in this world. And what he primarily means for us to do his will as it is done in heaven is when we supernaturally love each other. And our enemy, the person with whom I disagree, the person who betrayed me. And the Holy Spirit is so powerful that he, can, he is producing that even in people like us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say with the psalmist, you are intimately acquainted with all our ways. You are intimately acquainted with all our ways. You know all the ways that we are not loving. Lord, thank you that you are not ashamed to call us your people. That you're the God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That you have, Lord Jesus, taken the curse. And that you've broken the power of non-love. You've broken the power of selfishness. You are our Lord and you have dominion. We pray that we would be very, very loving with one another. Very gracious and patient. Lord, make us a community that interprets even each other's words and actions in the best light possible. And free us to love our enemy. 
to love those who've hurt us, to love the vulnerable. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.